Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your host, Coach Jason Coop, and on this episode of the podcast, we have a repeat offender coming to us all the way back from episode number 27. It's Nick Tiller, PhD. You all will probably remember that podcast as an epic one. It was over three hours in length, and it was all about nutrition for ultra running. Nick comes back to us today to discuss how to be a skeptic in this world of sports science. I know that every day when you open up your Instagram feed, you open up your Twitter feed, or you hop on over to Facebook, you're inundated with all these different products, nutrition products, and recovery modalities, things of the like, that will purportedly improve your performance. But it's almost impossible to ascertain fact from fiction. Which one of those products work? Which one of them don't? Which influencers actually use the products that they're peddling? And which one of them are just taking the paycheck? Who knows? It is really difficult to figure out what is going on. And so what I wanted to do on the podcast today is to leave all of you listeners with a toolkit with which you can navigate this world and go through it and say, yeah, this is a reasonable claim. This is not a reasonable claim. And I hope at the end of the day, you can take this toolkit, look for those red flags and make choices that will ultimately improve your performance. I started out this conversation with Nick with a little bit of banter on how the Coopcast came to be, and I decided to leave it in there just because it was fun. So I hope you all enjoy it. Without any further ado, let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Nick Tiller. I tell you what, I was I did I had to film some video over at my house uh, last night for a certification that I wrote some content for. And um, the guy who we hired to do the filming, I was complaining. I was complaining to him about how horrible I am at figuring out all this audio engineering. <laughs> and so there we go, right there. Right, given what you do. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, when I set this podcast up, like actually, one of my biggest fears was the amount of time that it was going to take because I'm not trying to monetize it. I'm, you know, I'm doing it as a service and for fun. And, you know, I, I get, I, I get a lot of value out of it personally as well, but I can't let it detract from coaching, which is what I do. And I've been really, you know, kind of really lucky that I've been able to like minimize the amount of like output that, that I've kind of, that I've put into this by like, you know, hiring somebody to do the post-production and, you know, bringing on guests to where I don't have to like carry the whole conversation and things like that. But you know, the downside to all of that is, is I'm still a freaking kindergartner with a lot of this stuff. <laughs> it's, you know, and it's for that reason that I've never started a podcast of my own because I know how much time it will take and I'm a perfectionist. I imagine like you, I want to do it properly as well. I just don't have the time. It's the same reason that I, I no longer have a blog because I figured if I'm going to put that much time into writing something, then I should probably be writing something that's going to be published or, you know, that I'm going to make money from. I don't feel like I can justify putting in that amount of time just for, just for the fun of it. Maybe that's my error, but uh, yeah, it takes a lot of time. It's yeah. Like, and you can, I mean, you can do it several different ways, right? Like, 
the time investment that you put into it, it I mean, it could literally be as easy as, you know, one person or one person and a co-host just recording their thoughts on something. And there's value in that. And there's a lot of entertainment value in that. But each level of complexity that you start to introduce it just gradually choose and choose up more and more time. So if you want to do in-person interviews, okay, you've got to have a setup for that and learn how that works and, you know, take the time to like meet people and have a, you know, studio or whatever. Then if you want to record remotely, that's a whole different thing. And then if you want to have, you know, four people versus two people, then that's a whole different thing. And then if they're joining one person's remotely and then one person's, you know, in person and then you're in the same room, that's another, you know, so it's just like, like just can go like on and on and on. And on and any on. additional layer of production for quality sure. oh that, that you add to it. Yeah. You know, you start using jingles and oh my God. You know, sound effects and stuff. Or it's it gets yeah, can easily escalate. I was really close to just having a format where it was just me or me and a co host because initially I wanted to just like reduce, I didn't want the time suck of like bringing on guests and things like that. And, uh, I, you know, I, I got pretty lucky that I got some, I got some really good counsel like early on before I went too far down that path. And they said, listen, Coop, like first off, like you want to have this podcast where you can simultaneously speak your opinion, but also, bring on people that you can challenge and that can challenge you. So you can't do that and like be your own, you know, kind of be in a silo, you know, essentially. And the second thing he said, he's like, listen, you, you know, you, you know what you know, but you also know what you don't know. And when you don't know something, you'll figure it out. This is somebody who's known me for a long time. When you don't know somebody, when you, when you don't know something, uh, you'll figure it out. But, one of the big ways in which you figure it out, not the only way, but one of the big ways in which you figure it out is you reach out to other people that are smarter than you in that area. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Thanks for that advice. I don't know why I didn't think about that earlier. <laughs> like, and then the final piece of it, this is what sealed the deal for me. He's like, listen, dude, if it's just you like trying to wax poetic on stuff, you're going to sound like an arrogant prick because you don't know everything. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. That's totally right. All right, you convince me. I'll spend a little bit more time like setting this up differently. But that makes all the difference, and that's what makes the good. That's what makes the podcast of you know of a good quality because people will see through that. You know, I, I mean, and everybody's got a podcast now. The the industry is almost saturated. And I'm like, come on, are you really qualified enough to be doing this? Do you have the experience to be doing it? Yeah, that's the shit I would have done when I was 25 years old. Like I told, I I knew myself when I was 25. In fact, I'm I'm actually going to bring on uh, the podcast. Um, one of my really early mentors, you might recognize his name, is JT Kearney. Yeah. Um, he was really influential when I was like in my mid 20s, and I thought I fucking knew everything, and just like kind of constantly like beat me down with this you know, simultaneous, like love and just being really hard and honest at the same time, which is hard to do. Right. And I had a lot of respect for him going, kind of going into the situation, which helps a tremendous amount because he could be hard on me. 
and I wouldn't take it as, as oh, he's so mean, you know, blah, he's cussing at me, and you know, how people get nowadays. And, um, I mean, honestly, for like seven years, it was like, fuck, Coop, all right, this is how we're going to think about this. Like, go back to the well, here's, you know, I'll give you like this much resource, and you've got to figure out the, like, you've got to figure out the rest of it. But absent that, I would have totally, like, because I had the personality and the, you know, whatever, confidence or arrogance or whatever, I could bring things to it. And also had like the, the entrepreneurship, you know, there's a little bit of that that goes into it, you know, like you want to, you want to, you generally want to contribute, but I did not have the, the insight to realize you know, it's the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? I did, not, I, did not, sure. I did not have the insight to realize what I what, what I didn't know. And I would look I would look back on that. And I have pieces of work that you could probably dig up from fucking 20 years ago. But, you know, that stuff lives for forever. And, you know, had I done that, I would have had all this garbage out there that I would have tried to erase from the far corners of the internet <laughs> and you should uh, you should be recording this because the dunning i mean i write about it in the book it comes up dunning kruger because part of the problem that we have in the health and fitness industry is people overestimating it or having too much confidence in, in their own ability and not being aware enough that they're ignorant of the reach of their own ignorance you know yep and um, people overestimating their abilities and that's a big problem with the industry and the whole notion of expert knowledge is undermined you know because everybody's an expert on social media everybody's afforded this platform to you know disseminate information but not everyone deserves that platform you know not everyone should be given that platform and this is part of the problem why we have so much misinformation and and crappy science because everyone's just disseminating information um that they don't really know what to do with you know But here's, here's where, here's what I want to come away with this podcast with is I want the listeners to have kind of a toolkit, so to speak, or some, or, or, or a skill set. I guess is a better way to think about it. So that when those things do come out, they can look at it with a skeptical eye and figure out how to like filter, how to like filter through that. Because even even me and even our set of coaches that I, I hammer them all on this all of the time. Cause they're just flooded with information and they're flooded with requests for answers, right? Like this came out, what do I do about it? What should I think about this? It's hard for them to keep track of it. It's hard for me to keep track of it. It's hard for other kind of professionals to keep track of it. And for, a, for a normal person, a normal athlete, that's kind of like out there, uh, I trying to put myself in their shoes it's easy. Here, here's the example I always give, and this is this is going to be the start of the podcast. It's, it's we've already got into it. Um, the the best example I can come up with is every April Fool's Day, all of these companies come up with their like own iteration to kind of like fool the public, and it's typically some twist on a current product lineup mm-hmm. that they make just believable enough to fool some people and everybody does it. Um, I remember last year or the year before last, like Solomon did this really funny thing where they came up with a carbon fiber fishing rod and yeah. they said that Killian Jornet was going to retire 
and become a fly fisherman. They had all this footage of him climbing up these mountains with this, you know, fishing rod that Solomon designed. It was really cute. But the but the be- the best example of this, the best example of how bad our filters are, actually comes from Goo. And they do a good job of these April Fool's Day pranks every every single year. One year they had um uh one year they had all of these different gel uh flavors. Like, uh, it was almost like the, uh, jelly belly flavors that are like booger and grass and things like that. They had like pimento loaf and, uh, liver and onions and they redid the packaging to like make it look like it was, it was really, really well done. One year they came out with a new product on April fool's day and it was called Dermacharge. And the concept of the product, it was, it was a transdermal carbohydrate application so it was a gel, right? You'd rub on your skin and apparently it could deliver carbohydrate. And they went through the whole thing like a normal product launch. And they used all these fancy buzzwords like transdermal carbohydrate application. And they had a fitness model smearing it all over them and on and on and on and on. And there was this really good blend of, of, of humor with like scientific reasoning behind it. And when it came out, I looked at it, I'm like, oh, this is hilarious. Like, this is like really freaking good. But I get in the office that morning and I had maybe, you know, 20 emails from athletes that fell for it. They like legitimately fell for it. They're like, hey, what do you think about this? And so, so me, I, I just kind of like, I kind of like laugh that off. I'm like, listen, it's April Fool's Day, you idiots. Like, come on, <laughs> did you really think this, this could happen? But I got an email from, I'm going to anonymize this to protect the innocent. Uh, I got an email from a a friend of mine who's in the coaching and sports science realm who should know better. And he sent it to me and said, Hey, you know what, what do you think about this? And I thought initially that he was just trying to put me on and like, get me to like fall for it. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to play along. So I call him up. I was like, Hey, yeah, I saw the same thing. Like, what do you think about it? So I'm like playing along with the joke and we get far enough into the conversation where I realize he's not trying to put me on. He's also falling for it. And this is somebody who knows better. Who's got a master's degree. They does a lot of physiological testing, works with athletes, works with sports scientists and things like that. And finally I get, we get like 20 minutes on the conversation. I'm like, dude, it's April Fool's Day, you fucking idiot. Like, are do you really think this? And he felt so bad. He's like, oh my God, I cannot believe I fell for this. Like, I can't believe, like, out of all people, me. And I'm like, I promise your secret is safe with me. I might use it in an example, like I just did, <laughs> but I'm not gonna release the day unless, you know, unless you do. But I think suffice it to say, like, even even when companies are try are intentionally putting out like cheeky information and they know that the information is false. Like people still don't have a good enough filter to figure out reality from fiction right now. And that that's what I kind of want to get out of this conversation is, is like, what, what can the, what can the listener do when all of these things authentically come out where people are trying to sell them products and new things come out, new technology comes out, everybody wants an edge. How do they cut through all of that? to figure out what's actually going to work and what's actually just total garbage. Sure. Yeah. And it's not a, there's no simple, you know, it's not like there, there is a simple kind of flow chart that you can follow. It does require kind of this very systematic methodical approach, but there are, there are absolutely some things you can look out for. There are, um, 
little red flags that you can try and notice. You can think about the plausibility of the products. You can then start to look at the evidence. And there are options if you don't know how to look at evidence. You know, what I cover in the book is how to read a paper, you know, something as simple as how to read a journal article. But beyond that, it's like, well, if you don't have the time or the technical capabilities to read a paper, then ask somebody who does. You can defer, right? It's having the humility to ask somebody who knows more than you do. So it's all of these things kind of integrated and, um, you know, when combined, it gives you the best chance of, of getting to the truth of the matter. And, and there are a few, what I would say, like really good examples of that, that you point out in your book, where you kind of go through, here's what, you know, here's what everybody was claiming and what was purporting and even things that have been purported or at least twisted within the scientific literature. And here's what's actually going on. I think to set it up a little further, like just pick your favorite one. I know I, there's like, I know it's hard to pick a, it's like picking your favorite child, right? Cause you had these examples there for, for good reason. I mean, you've got like chocolate is a little bit of alcohol, good for your health, like things like that. But is there, was there one when you're researching this book that stood out to you that it was like, okay, like here's something that everybody can kind of identify with and here, like, here's what, here's what happened. Yeah, probably. I like altitude training yeah, as a good okay. example because it's quite complex. There's, there's no there's no short answer, right? So I like talking about altitude training because there's it's very plausible and there's loads of positive research on it. But the reality of the way that it's been exploited and, and extorted in the industry for monetary gain doesn't in, in any way match the credibility of the literature. So if altitude training, for example, is going to work, we know that it's more than likely going to be a live high train load strategy. But there are very complex nuances that most people don't understand. I don't, I'm not an altitude specialist, but I know enough to know that not everyone responds to altitude training. It depends on what sport you're training for. If it's an endurance type sport, you're more likely to benefit from altitude training. If you're competing in a more explosive strength, power, high intensity dependent sport, then altitude training might actually compromise performance because you can't train at the intensities you need to, to maintain the explosive nature of the, uh, of the sport of performance. And like I said, some people are just non-responders. Some people don't respond to altitude as well as others, but even if you understand all of that, you look at the way the altitude training has been monetized by the industry. You have altitude training centers now that offer you 60 minute bouts, 60 minute kind of training sessions in an altitude training tent or an altitude chamber. And they sell courses of like six of these and you do, you do one a week. Well, even if you are generous and you say that the live high training strategies more than likely work. And even if you account for non-responders and everything else, there's no evidence, absolutely no evidence at all that training for 60 minutes once a week in a low oxygen chamber is going to have any impact on performance. And they don't even talk about performance. They talk about immune function and uh, fat burning, fat oxidation. So we have this 
this core kind of scientific research that is very complex, very complicated, more than likely some altitude training in some capacity is going to be beneficial for performance for, for a proportion of people. But the way that it's just been uh, extrapolated and exploited by the industry doesn't bear any resemblance to the research that's actually been done. So I like attitude because it's a very complex scenario. Well, and the the origin of that, if you go back and you want to pinpoint like the kind of the very first part of it is, especially in endur- on the endurance side of it, is the Kenyan dominance at the endurance events. And all it is is observation. It wasn't even, you know, the mechanism kind of, you've kind of followed the observation. They just said, okay, all the Kenyans live and train at 8,000 feet. There must be something magic to this 8,000 feet. And then they looked at the mechanism. Okay. There's some sort of improved, you know, red blood cell function, more, you know, higher hematocrits and things like that. And then the practice kind of followed that, but you could have just as easily have said, okay, all the Kenyans eat potatoes. There must be something magic within the potatoes. Let's start feeding everybody potatoes. But be, but for whatever reason, because it was like altitude and it carried like a little bit of monetization uh, to it, that's what that's what everybody started to chase. And so much so that I mean, I've seen this on the elite side, and we also see this in the commercial side as well. Is that the altitude the the altitude peak we've already, maybe, I don't know, I'm trying to get out of the prediction business ever since COVID hit because I keep getting it all wrong, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say this anyway. The altitude peak on the commercial side, it seems like we've already hit and we're kind of coming down from that where the centers and the units and people using altitude training, especially at a recreational level, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, war, like, like it's kind of gotten worn out by now. And we're just starting to see it almost kind of on the, uh, on the decline, even at the elite side, you know, I mean, you go back to the nineties and the early two thousands where, you know, sports scientists like Ben Levine and, and that group, they, you know, they took people to high altitude camps and it was like the de facto rite of passage that you went to a high altitude camp to train and it's still prevalent, but it's not de facto. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. It's still very trendly. Uh, trending most endurance cyclists and endurance runners in terms of uh, podium funded programs will have yearly altitude sojourns. And, yeah, every, every year they'll, they'll go and they'll do a, a training camp at altitude. I remember when I worked uh, at the Olympic Center, this is going back quite a few years, and we had a very nice, sophisticated environmental chamber. So we could do temperature extremes and altitude as well. It was a, um, a, a it wasn't a hyperbaric chamber. It was a hypoxic chamber. So you couldn't change partial pressure of the oxygen. It was just manipulating the oxygen content of the air. So it simulated high altitude. And I was working with a, with a performance program and the coaches insisted that we get all the athletes into the environmental chamber to do some altitude training sessions. So twice a week for a six week period. And as a, a relatively young, inexperienced sports scientist at the time, I didn't really have the gravitas, the weight to make any demands on the, on the type of the training, especially when you work with these world-class Olympic coaches who have, you know, won multiple medals, you know, at various Olympic games. But I tried anyway, and I said, look, if we're going to do this, 
we need to try and do it rigorously so that we know if there's actually any beneficial effects. And what we kind of need to do is get half the training, half the, the team doing, doing the intervention, the altitude training intervention. The other half maintain normal training and we do some pre and post measures, just a very basic scientific research study, take some bloods and do some exercise testing before and after in both groups. And we just see if it's effective. That way we know one, if we're wasting our time and money and two, if it's going to have any negative impact on physiology or performance. And that way, kind of that, that will stand us in good stead going forward. But they didn't like that idea because it, no, it took too much time, too much effort, and it meant that half the group didn't get the altitude intervention. Right. And they were already sold on the intervention. They, their minds were made up on this new, newfangled kind of trend thing that everyone else was doing. So we went ahead and we, we, we did the intervention with the entire group. We did no pre and post testing, so we had no idea if it worked. But the placebo effect, you know, is, is a powerful effect. So even, even if it works in the context of placebo alone, that was enough for the athletes and that was enough for the coaches. Whether it actually had any physiological effect, we, we have no idea. Well, that, that was almost secondary. Yeah. And also on the altitude side, the way that most of them are set up, it's set up as a camp. So you go to a high location, you rent out a house, everybody stays there. It's nice. It's away from your family. It's away from all the distractions and things like that. And the athletes leave that camp fitter. Absolutely. A hundred percent. But it's hard to tease out. Is that due to the altitude or is it like a second order effect from the environment of the camp itself? So the nutritionists that they bring in, the fact that it's an isolated environment, that you've got other training partners around, that you're, you know, that you are kind of, you're less distracted or distraction free or something like that. Like athletes will always say that they're better after the quote unquote altitude camp. And then that's how that myth kind of gets perpetuated because they're using the term altitude camp and not just training camp, right? When, sure. in, when in reality, what is more likely to be happening is they're benefiting from all of these other second, second order effects more than the actual altitude. But a lot of people, and this is the more concerning thing, most people don't actually care yeah. if, the, if it's the altitude that's having the effect or if it's just the training camp. Placebo effect is a real effect, and for a lot of people that have studied this, most people don't care if they get better because of placebo. They don't mind being uh, deceived by their coach into using a placebo as long as the outcome is improved performance. So I make an argument in the book that actually placebo-mediated treatments might actually have negative outcomes on, on various facets of society, which we can talk about later if it comes up. But, um, but, but most people aren't really bothered. They, as long as they feel like they're doing something, if they're throwing money at the problem, if they're going on the training camp, they buy some new, some new running shoes, they buy an expensive heart rate monitor. They've already convinced themselves that it's going to have a positive impact on their performance and their training. And for most people, that's enough. Well, you, okay, we're going to go down that rabbit hole because you, 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 you perked up my antenna on something that I've kind of like harped on, uh, harped on beforehand. So you can throw away the outline I sent you earlier. <laughs> um, we'll talk about the placebo effect because there is a notion out there amongst athletes, amongst coaches, amongst sports scientists that athletes and coaches should leverage the placebo effect. 
and use these things intentionally knowing that there's no physiological effect, that they're really just getting some, you know, some, some perceived effect from it. And I've always looked at it. I've always looked at that proposition and said, one, you can only lie to your athletes so many times before it stops working. This is where I put my coach hat on, right? I'm like, you, you can get away with that like once or twice. Absolutely. hundred percent. Hey, listen, we're going to do this. You're going to be awesome afterwards. There, there's this notion that athletes and coaches should use the placebo effect to their advantage. And when I put my coach hat on with that, I always think that you can only lie to your athletes because that's what you're doing. You can only lie to your athletes so much before the ruse is over. And then the second thing is, is there's stuff out there that works. So why not use that? Like if you want to use, you know, a pill or a training intervention or whatever, there's tons of stuff out there that actually work. Why don't use that? And you know, it works and there's, you know, they think that it works. So you get some sort of like compounding effect from the actual physiological benefit and the psychological benefit from it. Go ahead and do that path versus just pulling stuff out of thin air and saying, oh yeah, the red pill is going to what is going to, you know, increase your oxygen consumption by, by 5%. So I don't, maybe you can like help me understand. I, I, I fail to understand the rationale that it, that is prevalent out there. And I've seen a lot of really well-known coaches promote this. I don't understand the rationale for intentionally using a placebo to get a training effect out of an athlete. Yeah, it's a really interesting one because if you look at the research that's been done on the magnitude of the effect from using a placebo, it's somewhere between one and three percent. You get an improvement in performance of between one and three. And if you look at uh, you know a number of well-known supplements, you look at caffeine or carbohydrate during exercise, the magnitude of the effect between one and three percent. Right. <laughs> so you can, you can get a similar effect by not using anything, just you, through, through the power of the mind. But you hit on an important point. It's like, how do you move this forwards? So I make a really strong case in the book because I'm a little bit old school, a little bit at one end of the spectrum when it comes to good science and being rigorous and evidence-based practice. And I don't like using placebos. People who work in performance do like using them because they it does improve performance. That's unequivocal. But it ha- in terms of moving that forwards, well, like you say, maybe we've got to use products that that, that work and, and have been shown in controlled studies to have a positive physiological effect on performance, but also are associated with a strong expectation of effect on behalf of the athlete. So caffeine is a great example because it actually works. There are various mechanisms by which it can improve exercise performance, depending on the exercise. But most athletes, if you told them that I'm going to give you a caffeine supplement, they would be, they would expect it to work as well. And they've probably got prior experience. Most athletes anyway, if they use caffeine, would have prior experience of feeling, you know, the stimulant effects of the caffeine or having an increase in concentration or whatever. So you get kind of the double whammy of the placebo effect of the expectation, have low conditioning, but you also have a real physiological effect. 
but um, I'm not in favor at all of just using products that only work in the context of placebo because this is pretty slow. And if you allow somebody to start using products that only work in the context of placebo, then you've got to allow them to use anything that only works in the context of placebo. And that includes complementary and alternative medicines, alternative therapies, um, chiropractic, homeopathy. And we, we've got to remember that the world of sports performance is once there, but it overlaps heavily with health, which overlaps heavily with the clinical side of things. So taking a sugar pill to improve your 5K run performance, okay, if the pill doesn't work, then it's no big deal, right? You don't, you don't break the PR that day. But if you give a sugar pill to somebody with a bacterial infection, then that's a problem because if you have a bacterial infection, you more than likely need antibiotics in order to get better. And you're not, you may not get better unless you take antibiotics. And there are lots of instances, you know, very high profile cases in the media where people have foregone traditional medical treatments in favor of placebos, in favor of treatments that only work in the context of placebo, and people have died, and they're still dying, and children are getting very, very sick, and children dying because people are using products that, that only work through a placebo-mediated effect. And if somebody is critically ill, you know, everyone knows intuitively that somebody's having an asthma attack, probably shouldn't give them a placebo in order to treat the asthma attack. Right. Um, but that's kind of what we're dealing with. And if you allow it in one aspect of the health and fitness industry in terms of sports performance, it's kind of a slippery slope to the clinical side of things as well. And that's kind of the argument that we're making the book. And the, the real issue for the end users, the athletes that are out there, as I was alluding to earlier in the, in, in our discussion was it's hard for them to ascertain the difference. And the typical, the typical scenario that gets set up is they open up their Instagram feed. And I'm sorry to pick on the heavy Instagram users. It's just the easiest one. They open up their Instagram feed and they see so-and-so athlete using such-and-such product. And then they scroll down a little bit further and they see another athlete using a different product. Athlete A could be completely authentic meaning that athlete uses that product, that product has efficacy, the product helps the athlete. Situation B, the company is paying the athlete, the athletes never use the product, the product doesn't work. But those two situations to many, if not most, end users that are actually looking at it are indistinguishable in terms of the way that the person is observing the athlete using those products. And also the effect that it's going to ultimately have on them. And I have people, I mean, honestly, Nick, like on a weekly basis, what about this? What about that? Does this work? Does that work? And it, it actually kind of becomes like a big part of like my work output kind of like every week is, you know, fil like filtering through this. And most of them, you know, 95% of them, whatever, I've got pretty stock responses for because we've seen them time and time and time, and time again, 5% throw me for a loop and I have to do a little bit of research on, but the rate that people are getting inundated with, with this stuff, it becomes hard. So maybe we can start to work through like, and I know that it's a 
that, it, that it's a skill that needs to be honed, but maybe we can kind of like work through some things that people that are listening to this can go, okay, the next time I see XYZ pop up in, you know, the popular literature and Instagram feed or whatever, here's some things that I can go through to like provide at least an initial filter for it and not get duped on April Fool's Day by goo again. <laughs> I think the, yeah, if it's April Fool's Day, just assume that everything you're reading is trash. That's the, that's the first rule. The second rule is that is that Twitter followers are not credentials. That's the second rule. It doesn't matter how many Twitter followers somebody has or how many likes they have on a Facebook page, that does not make them an authority. You know, and, and it, this this comes back, I have a whole chapter on logical fallacies in sport. And the, the one that you just described is the argument to authority paying athletes or famous people to wear a product or to use a product or to, or to be pictured or filmed using a product is as old as time itself, right? So as old as modern civilization. And uh, it, it all comes, it's all about the money, right? If you can't distinguish what the athlete's real motives are for using that product, if they're getting paid to endorse a product, then even if they really believe in the product, then the endorsement is tainted. There's going to be an investment bias associated with it. So, for example, I have no doubt that Adidas Predators are a really good football boot, you know, as in uh, soccer. Yeah, yeah. And I, when I was a kid, you didn't have a pair of soccer boots unless you had Adidas, Adidas Predators. They were, they were just they were so cool and everyone had them because all of the professional footballers use them. I'm sure they're very, very good boots, but the fact that these athletes got them for free or were paid to be pictured wearing them means that the motive has been confused. And if somebody is selling you something, as in selling you for monetary gain, then the motive has been contaminated by virtue of the fact that they're trying to get your money. Yeah. Right. So it's... It's a little bit pessimistic to assume that everyone's trying to rip you off. But if you start from that base, that everyone wants your money in the health and fitness industry, everyone's trying to make a quick buck, then you can, you can figure out ways to filter. I like your expression in email. Or was it filter through the, the grit to get to the diamonds or something? Yeah, yeah. But if you start from that base, assuming that everyone's trying to rip you off, and then go from there. That's probably a pretty good place to start. Not a lot. I'm, I'm laughing because not a lot of people are. A lot of people want to look at the world through like rose-colored lenses. Like oh, everybody has yeah. the best intentions and, and things like that. But I mean, I absolutely agree with you that in the health and fitness industry, and I, it's a whole like it's a whole another conversation to go go down in terms of why this particular industry is like that. And politics is kind of the same way. But you have to take, you have, you do have to start out with the orientation that this is fake. I got to figure out what's real. That's the way that I, that's the way that I look at it. I look at, I look at stuff through the when I'm evaluating that and it, it, part of me hates to do it because I, I am actually an optimist at the end of the day, but I've learned and I've gotten duped enough that I have to look at these things through the lens of first it's fake and I got to figure out if it's actually real or not. And it's just like, it's sad that it's like come to that place. How did we end up here? Well, sure. But, <laughs> but if you, if you change the context, right. And think about it from a, in a different industry, you're going to buy a new car and you go to the car lot, right. 
and you go and speak to the salesman and you say to the salesman, okay, sell me a car, you wouldn't just believe what they told you. You know, they're, they're going to show you, even if they're showing you some used cars, you're going to assume that there's some rhetoric in there. You're not going to assume that they're being honest. You're not going to assume that they have your best interests at heart. You're going to assume that they're trying to make money. And if anybody who's ever bought a car will know this because, unfortunately, used car salesmen don't have a very good reputation. But there's a reason for that, you know. No offense to anybody who might be listening who is a used car salesman before you get emails. I'm sure you're the really honest, authentic one. But but in most people's experience, um, they're trying to they're trying to shift cars, right? Because that's their business. And there's no reason why it would be any different in any other facet of society, especially one like health and fitness, which is confused and conflated with so much fake science and pseudoscience and false claims. Um, it's very easy to, to make grand claims on very, very weak evidence. You can get away with it. There's, there's, no, there's not really any regulating authority. And there's kind of like a sliding scale of this where so, where you'll see re, in the research side of it, where you'll see research that's intentionally designed to get a particular result. Yep. You'll see research that is done kind of kind of unbeknownst to whatever company and then they latch on to a particular piece of it to exploit it. And then I'm going in a random order here of you know de- degree de- degrees of error and then you see the stuff that that has been outright paid for by a company to produce not only just to produce the research which that has to happen like research needs to get funded. That's not the worst error in the entire world. But a lot of times it's, they're paid to get a certain result. That's where the error kind of comes. It let's kind of go. What I want to do is, is now go down like the degrees of error, right? Or the degrees of egregiousness. And I'll start out with my personal example. And then you can get into like when you were actually asked to like personally bias your research. Um, it, in the kind of the early two thousands, this, this, uh, recovery drink with a four to one carbohydrate to protein ratio started to become extremely prevalent. And kind of the first ones on the market was this company uh, called Endurox. And they were ultimately bought by Pacific Labs, which is a huge nutritional uh, supplement company. And the woman that initially did that research is a friend of mine. She's one of our CTS coaches. She lives up in Denver, Kathy Zawatsky. And I love Kathy to death. death. And her and I have had many, many, many discussions on how this whole thing transpired. So for those of you out there that think I'm throwing somebody under the bus, I'm not. It's somebody that realizes what has gone on. So when she was a graduate student at the University of Texas at John Ivey's lab, and the listeners, nobody will recognize who John Ivey is, but he is very well respected in the sports science community. When Kathy was an undergraduate in his lab, she designed this study comparing one drink to another. And the first drink was an all carbohydrate drink. And the second drink was the exact same drink, but they added protein in a four to one ratio. So four grams of carbohydrate to one, what, to one gram of protein. The key with that and the way that I describe that is, or the, the reason that I describe that that way is that the second drink was the first drink plus, plus keyword, the protein. Mm-hmm. So she comes out with this research. Oh my gosh, this four to one, you know, 
carbohydrate to protein uh, drink. It had a greater effect on glycogen resynthesis. That was the kind of the summary of the paper. And this company, Endurox, kind of latched onto it and made a beverage around it after the research had kind of come out. And the gist of it was is this four to one carbohydrate to protein, you know, ratio was magic. Did the lab didn't have anything to do with it in advance. They, you know, the product came out afterwards. It was untainted research and things like that. But what Kathy realized after the fact is that it wasn't the carbohydrate to protein ratio, nor the additional protein. It was just higher in calories that was the primary driver of this glycogen th synthesis. But this company in Durox kind of latched onto it and ran with it. And they built up a really big business kind of in the early and the mid and the late 2000s before other companies started to kind of catch on. And this whole time, Kathy is like, these people are using my research and it's not the way that it was intended, you know, but they could stamp this, you know, it's been validated by research and, you know, blah, 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 blah on it. And we had a relation. This is where the personal side of it came in. So we are the company that I worked for. We had a relationship with Endurox, an endorsement re relationship, where we were pushing this drink. And yes, it was superior to a carbohydrate drink of lesser calories, but the same carbohydrate content. But it wasn't any better than any sort of other drink of the same amount of calories. And it took me about, I don't know, like 18 months to like unravel all of the different you know, all of the different steps of this. And it's not a big deal to the athletes at the end of the day. You know, they're still getting a good high quality product. It's not deleterious. It's, you know, water approved and all that stuff. But the, 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 the four to one claim, which was like the linchpin and all of the advertising personally, I felt like an idiot for regurgitating that. And I had to go back to a lot of people and say, yeah, you know, we were wrong for this and blah, 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 blah. And that, I always point to that example of something that started out benign. Nobody's trying to fool anybody. The company at the end of the day is just trying to make money. They pick the sexiest thing out of the research to promote and everybody just kind of follows it. And I raised my hand. I was the sheep and I followed it as well. Kind of no harm, no foul. But it doesn't, it's not always like that. Sometimes it, they go into the situation intentionally trying to dupe people. Well, you know, I, I think I would say this is disingenuous. I don't think they're necessarily doing anything wrong, but, but they're also not being sufficiently candid and um, transparent because in that situation, they're not comparing like with like. Well, that's what it comes down to. It's not isocalorific. So you have one product that just contains more calories than the other one. So, of course, it's probably going to facilitate recovery better, plus it contains protein. And, I, and I've seen other examples of that. There's a very, very big uh, nutrition company, which I won't mention, but they advertised several years ago an electrolyte product that compared to a carbohydrate product enhanced fat oxidation by about 40%. So you take their electrolyte product, compare it to a carbohydrate product that belonged to their closest competitor, and it enhanced fat oxidation by 40%, which is colossal, right? Yeah. So, and that was the claim with the, that went with the product. And it, and it's true, you know, it, if you look at the studies, there were controlled studies and they were, they were relatively well performed. 
And the conclusion is valid in that if you compare it against that carbohydrate product, then fat oxidation or lipid oxidation is augmented by 40%. But when you dig a little bit deeper, you're comparing a a zero calorie drink with a carbohydrate formula, (laughs) right? You're comparing apples and oranges. The carbohydrate formula is designed for one purpose, to replace carbohydrate and to increase carbohydrate oxidation rate. The other one is designed for a completely different purpose. So you're not comparing the, you're not comparing like with like. So the claim itself is not fallacious, but it's not, but it's completely disingenuous. And people are going to see that and they're going to think, well, if I use that that electrolyte formula, then I'm going to max, I'm going to augment my fat oxidation rates, which is something that a lot of endurance athletes might, might want to target in their training. But if you compare the electrolyte formula to water, the fat oxidation rates are probably going to be very closely comparable. So I think that's a very similar example to the one that you presented. Yeah, technically they're not doing anything wrong, but then they're also being a little bit disingenuous from my perspective. And so take me through, I want to hear the story personally. I think the listeners will get a kick out of it. You tell it in your book, but maybe you can elaborate it a little bit more uh, in an audio format. When you were going through some of your, was it your graduate research or your PhD research? My master's. Master's research. You had a company approach you to basically fudge the data. Like they're going to pay you to fudge the data. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it, it's not. It wasn't um, data fabrication. That's kind of the the worst possible scenario in scientific research. But it was pretty much as good as. So I should predicate it by set, by just setting some of the um, some of the background. So ideally, what would happen in product development is that there is a rich body of research on a particular area, and then some scientist that's got you know had a spark of creativity or innovation would see the literature this very robust body of evidence on the on the literature and then create a product off the back of it so the research is already in place and the product comes later and there's there are examples of that is very very few and far between they're very very sparse in in sports science but some products are based on this pre-existing body of literature. But what happens in most cases is that the product is developed and either nobody bothers to do any research on it anyway because they don't need to because they can pay athletes to endorse their products or they've got other sophisticated marketing programs so they don't need the scientific research. Or they then retroactively perform some scientific quote-unquote scientific research to fill the gap, to fill the void in, in the um, literature. And that more often than not, that's what happens. And that's, you know, it's not the best way to do science, but it's probably better than nothing. So in this instance, uh, I was working during my master's with, so my master's was actually funded. It was industry-sponsored by a sports nutrition company, my master's was based around carbohydrate supplementation, but more specifically carbohydrate metabolism during endurance sport. So I was interested in different rates of carbohydrate oxidation and fat oxidation during exercise in athletes of different abilities and how we could manipulate that with carbohydrate supplements. Now, at the time, this was back in 2005, 2006, 
the whole industry of kind of uh, carbohydrate supplements was it was still quite novel at the time. I think it's it's fairly well established now. The carbohydrate supplements are are beneficial for long term endurance type sports, for marathons and triathlons and so forth. But at the time, this was relatively novel research, and I was testing different carbohydrate formulas in my masters. And this company approached me because they'd seen the work that I'd done, and, and they were retroactively doing some research so that they could cite that research alongside this new product that they developed. And it was a carbohydrate caffeine formula. And they knew what they were doing, right? They, they'd hired this professional cyclist, a big name in the industry, to do two time trials. One time trial was going to be, I think it was a 40K time trial in the lab using their carbohydrate caffeine supplement. And the other one was, a, was a, a, a similar product from their closest competitor. And they asked me to test these two products. And in the first trial, they, they wanted me to test the, the product from their closest competitor. And in, in fact, no, I tell a lie. It was actually testing it against a placebo. So it wasn't even a fair trial. That, that, that was another instance where, where we were testing two products like for like. This was actually their product against a, uh, a zero-calorie, zero-caffeine placebo. So we weren't even comparing like with like. So that, that's the first red flag. But they asked me in the first trial when the athlete is, going, is, is doing the trial, it's a 40K effort, just let him get on with it. Yeah, just tell him that he's you know, using, using some placebo products, whatever, let him get on with it. Don't give him any encouragement. And, you know, if you, maybe if you can, just have him facing a wall or something. In the second trial, when, when, when you're going to use the carbohydrate caffeine product, you know, really try and sell it to him. Tell him that he's using this cutting-edge product. Tell him that his performance is going to be enhanced. Tell him that we've done preliminary trials when performance, performance effects have been like 10% or something. And really, you know, Give him as much encouragement as you can. And I was kind of thinking back now, I was at a bit of a crossroads in my career because I was relatively inexperienced as a physiologist. I was young. I was broke as well because I was a student. And I was really tempted to take this on. And they were going to pay me a lot of money to do this. But I had the foresight to know that this is, it's not even bad science. This is just... This is completely, this is pseudoscience. Because <laughs> not only are we not pairing like with like, but it's not a fair trial. And they're conducting the trial just so that they can say in legal documents that they've done a trial with this physiologist at this university. And for a lot of companies, that's enough. Yeah. That's enough. That's enough to, on which they can base a whole line of products. I'm glad to say that I didn't take them up on the <laughs> offer and I... I sidestepped that one. They went to a colleague of mine who did take it on. Him and the company ended up in some legal problems because of the claims that they made around the product. Oh, wow. So it was a happy ending all around. Not, <laughs> not so kind that took it on. But, th but this is what you're dealing with in this industry is that when, when you have science that's being done for the sake of science so that companies can say that they've made the effort, you know, this token effort, it's um, it's crappy science, and it's crappy data. It's 
is not worth the paper that it's published on. Okay, so that's a hilarious story, and I did not realize the extent of it. The most incredible thing about that, Nick, is the scenario. Like, I can get, okay, you're going to compare product A to essentially water, right? Flavor, no-calorie water. Like, that happens quite quite regularly in in nutrition in nutrition trials and it's hard to figure out at least for most consumers it's hard to figure out when their research validated uh research validated product has that kind of manipulation going into it but the the environmental manipulation like okay have this boring environment on one side and this super exciting environment on the other side i mean that's why they double blind most of these trials so the per, the people conducting the tests themselves and you've been in threshold and vo2 max tests like you want to try to get the most out of the athletes or yelling and screaming at them you usually have a script you know that you have to kind of go by to make sure that it's standardized every time and whatnot you go to great lengths to standardize the environment the fact that they're asking you intentionally to go to great lengths to manipulate the environment like total that's the most incredible part of it in an end of one as well with, yeah. with a single subject you know, oh, there's man. not one thing about that scenario oh, that screamed good science. Oh, man. Everything was wrong with it. You know, I, I, I remember working with uh, about, about the same kind of time. I was involved in a few different trials looking at carbohydrate supplements. And we, we tested like, I don't know, 20 different athletes. They were all very well-trained cyclists. And one of them, for whatever reason, I think there was a glitch in the system, but, but uh, he ended up performing like 40% better in one trial than, he, than in another. And it was a complete outlier. It was, you know, artifactual. We all knew that something had gone wrong with, with a piece of kit. But the next month, uh, the company that we were doing the, this testing for had a full A4 page advert out in a, in a big triathlon magazine saying, perform 40% better than the nearest competitor. So not only had we not done any stats, we hadn't published the data. Wow. It was one subject who had done this this kind of random anomalous trial that we knew uh, that, that we knew wasn't technically accurate and they'd kind of taken this one result and just run with it. Uh, and so that's, that's another example of, of how these, these data can be manipulated. So let's kind of go back to the tools and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to lead you a little bit. And if we go off the wrong track, you bring me back because you're the expert here. So the, the first tool is to inherently realize that people are trying to rip you off. <laughs> like I, I laugh at it because people are going to be like, Coop, you're such a pessimist, but I, I don't know. I've kind of gotten to that, that place as well. Like view things when you see an athlete endorse a product, when you see that advertisement in the triathlon magazine, in the trail running magazine or whatever, look at it like, okay, what's wrong with this? Not, oh, wow, this is great. Like, look at it. Okay. How, you know, what are they trying, what are they manipulating here? Look at like, start from the skeptical side, not from the accepting side. I, I, I think that the second, the, like another tool that people can use is to be wary of the sexy ways to improve performance that have been adulterated. And you touched on one right at the very beginning of this, and that's altitude. We've started to see this with the respiration masks, right? The altitude mask, which went through this whole saga, right? So, so for everybody who's, who's uninformed, uh, who's listening to this, it's uninformed. There's this company out there that produced a mask that you could wear while you're exercising. And the name of it was the altitude mask. 
And all it did was restrict the amount of oxygen flow that you could intake. And so it was literally making you breathe harder. But what they were claiming is that it simulated altitude. They were taking this sexy thing, altitude, and they were trying to adulterate it into a, a, a cheap product that they could sell to the masses. They actually had to rename that product. The FCC made them rename that. I don't know if that's true in the UK as well, but in the US, uh, the FCC made them rename it to the training mask because it was blatantly, kind of blatantly false. But I use that as an example, as, as another thing that people can do to try to cut through some of the clutter and and like find the diamonds. If a company is taking something that has a lot of sex appeal to it, and I'll bring out a few examples, altitudes, one fat burning is an, uh, is another one. And, um, Oh God, what was the last one that I was just trying to come up with? I had it off the tip of my tongue. Um, we'll just leave it at those two altitude and fat burning. And they're using something, some product, some concoction, some some piece of equipment to exploit this area. That's when your antennas should go up. Yeah, I hundred percent agree with that. If they're taking some kind of something that's trendy, something that a lot of people are talking about, and can work, and can work. That's the other thing is that in some cases, like that that word or whatever can actually work. Yeah, and it's and it's extrapolating it so right. that the claim that they're making doesn't necessarily. So altitude is a great example. Uh, you can look at compression garments as another example. So compression garments, there is some research to suggest that it might have some kind of role in recovery if, if you're if you do some kind of very ex- extreme high intensity or long duration exercise that damages the muscles and that can create soreness, and then you're going to be sitting sedentary for a long period of time maybe you're traveling or you're sleeping then maybe if you wear some of these low full lower body compression tights it might help to facilitate recovery in some way the research is is a little bit equivocal on that but okay let's be generous but there's a whole range now of compression tights and compression anklets that you can buy and they always when you look at the website selling these things they cite the literature that is relevant only to full lower body or whole body compression garments. And so the literature has been, the research has been done on full lower body tights, and it's not relevant for an ankle length or a knee length sock. They're not the same thing, but the latter will invoke the research for the former. So it's the same thing. They're catching you on something that's trendy that may have been shown to work. But if we can, I'll let's bring, take it a step back because before we get to that point, I would say that any product that claims to offer you rapid results, that should be a red flag. Mm, there you go. Because, you know, I'm not a coach. I'm a, I'm a scientist. But you as the coach, you, you know better than anyone, and I'm sure most of the athletes listening to this will know, that anything that is worthwhile in health and fitness and performance has to be labored after. You have to toil after it. It doesn't come in a week or two weeks. It's something that you have to invest in. It takes time and discipline and determination to slowly develop fitness, to increase your strength, to reduce your body fat, to improve your fitness. These things take time, okay? And anytime somebody tries to sell you a product, whether it's a supplement or a diet or a 
or a compression garment or a pair of running shoes that claim to offer you very quick, rapid, simple results, that to me is a red flag because most of the valuable things in exercise and performance don't come rapidly. They have to be earned with time. They're chronic adaptations, not eight exactly. ones. Yeah, 100%. I'm with you there. Um, I've also, one of the things that I also use to like filter through this stuff when there are scientific claims associated with whatever, whatever is going on is I'll go and I'll look up the research. And I think you gave a little bit of indication to this earlier, where is it comparing the product to the actual research or are they extrapolating that to a certain degree? Like in the question, in the compression garments where the research is based on whole body compression and they're just saying, well, you know, this calf sleeve is pretty close to whole body compression, which is, which is a big leap. I mean, it might not seem like a big, big leap to, you know, the lay consumer, but in the research world it is. The other thing, the other thing that's related to that when we're looking at scientific claims and this goes along both products and uh, supplements and nutritional interventions is who is the audience that they're researching? And I'll immediately skip to the participants. And if they're normal people, not athletes, almost all of the time, they're very, very rare exceptions to this. Almost all the time, I'll throw that away. Because as we know, it's really easy to get an adaptation or a positive response from somebody who doesn't exercise when we're talking about the exercise world. It's easy. They'll adapt to anything because they're coming at such a low level. If you're talking about trained or elite athletes, they need such, there's a higher burden of proof, I guess, uh, is what I'm saying on the intervention side. But a lot of companies will just think that everybody's not going to like read that part. And so they have a piece of equipment. They have all these like recreational or even, people who don't exercise, sometimes it's even an obese population that uses the pieces of equipment or the intervention and, oh, they improved by 50%, 60%, 100% in some sort of metric. And it seems amazing. And athletes look at that and go, oh my God, if I improve 50% on my 10K time, I'm the world record holder. <laughs> but what they don't realize is they're looking at an obese population and not an athletic one. So that's the, like the second one I go to is the pot, like who are the participants in the study that the study is citing? And a lot of the research, you know, if you look at the stuff on ketogenesis, for example, a lot of the early research was done in rodents. Right. And there were, there were people were already making, selling diets and making claims based off of rat and, and mouse literature. There's only kind of more recently that there's been more stuff in humans. But the... Looking at literature is, is very difficult because not everyone has the time or the capacity to, to read literature. And it does take us, it does require a certain understanding of the exercise science. And that can be learned for sure. But there are a number of things you can do before you even start looking at the, at the studies and looking at the research. There's a bunch of things you can do. And I think in chapter five, I, I kind of talk at length about these three different stages that you can go through to really evaluate if a product is likely to be worth your time and money. The first stage is looking to see if there are red flags. If there, if red flags kind of crop up that make you go kind of something that doesn't quite sit right. And we've mentioned a few of those already. So does, does the product offer rapid results? That to me is a red flag. Is the product that's being advertised particularly pertinent or trendy 
are they cashing in on something that is just in the media? Is it very current? So that's another kind of red flag. You can also look at whether the product is being marketed on what we call a logical fallacy. And there are kind of between eight and 10 logical fallacies that, that are used really commonly in, in the health and fitness industry. But I'll give you a couple of examples. One we've already mentioned is the product being sold on what we call the appeal to authority. So is a famous athlete or a famous celebrity I guess celebrities are famous by definition, but it is an athlete or a celebrity being paid to be pictured or filmed wearing the product or using the product? More often than not, they are. Okay, but just because your favorite soccer player or your favorite runner or a famous cyclist is pictured using the product, that doesn't necessarily mean that it that it works. You've got to remember they're being paid to wear it, right? You've got to think about the motive. Lance Armstrong was sponsored by Nike for many, many years, and they very quickly dropped him when they, when they uh, found out you know, what he'd been up to. But, uh, but just because an athlete is sponsored by a particular brand, that doesn't mean that the brand itself necessarily has any merit. The product's got to be judged on merit and merit alone. Another example is the appeal to, um, appeal to popularity. Just because a particular product sells in a particularly high volume, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that the product is efficacious in its own right. So you can look at protein powders. Let's say I develop a protein powder called Tiller's Protein, and I advertise it with the, with the slogan, over a million products sold worldwide. Well, just because a million products have been sold worldwide doesn't mean that the thing actually works. It just means that a million, it just means that a million people have bought it. And a million people can be wrong, um, you know, believe it or not. Maybe I've just got a very sophisticated marketing strategy. Uh, maybe I've fudged the sales statistics. So does the product actually work is a different question to how many products has the, has, have, have actually been sold. So these are all red flags. Marketeers like do I'm going to let you keep going, but I, I want to like break in just a little bit. That's an intentional, um, marketing strategy by a lot of companies is to saturate whatever space that they're playing in the endurance space, bodybuilding space, whatever to saturate it with product, like almost literally flood it with product. So it makes it seem as if everybody's using it. They'll get a bunch of capital behind them, go out to their investors and things like that. And an intentional, very deliberate strategy is taking advantage uh, of this logical uh, uh, fallacy, the appeal to popularity, that everybody is using it. And really all they're doing is they're just flooding the market with free stuff. I Actually, I know coaches who have done that. I know people like in the coaching industry that when they first get started, and I can't kind of blame them for the strategy because you got to start somewhere, but they intentionally just try to get as many people on board as possible at a free or super low price point in order to like seem as if everybody is partaking in kind of, kind of in, in their services. But it's, it's really, I think it's really fascinating that you mentioned that because I can, I've seen 
and I've talked to people in marketing departments. I'm not going to reveal their names. I've talked to people in marketing departments where they've they've admitted they're like, this is a strategy we use. We want every we want everybody to think that everybody else is using our product. We want as much of it in the marketplace so that it seems like the next greatest thing that everybody's using. But well, there are two things to unpack there. Firstly, you're referring to something called the exposure effect, and I'm going to read directly from the from the book here. This bias pertains to the visibility of a brand, which in turn results in the inference, that's on behalf of the consumer, that it's a superior product, just by the fact that you see it a lot. And um, and it links in with the appeal to authority, where athletes and celebrities are wearing the products, just to, by, very, by the virtue of the fact that you see the product everywhere, you just assume that it's a high quality product, and you don't take the extra step to test if the product can be valued on merit alone. The other thing to consider is that, again, I don't want to paint too much of a negative picture, but marketing campaigns are designed to exploit our ignorance and our insufficiencies in, in, in our cognitive decision-making processes. So we, we, we have evolved reason and logic for um, basically for navigating hypersocial groups and we have an ingrained economy in our brains we are hardwired for economy that is called heuristic problem solving and this served us very well when we were hunter gatherers you know 10,000 years ago when economy was very very important for survival our genetics haven't changed a great deal since that time but modern society modern culture has and we haven't been able to adapt, to adapt with sufficient speed. And there are actually websites that are run by marketing uh, companies that will, will actually, um, how can I put this? That they're, they're designed to help companies to design marketing strategies and advertising campaigns specifically to exploit those cognitive biases. There are even websites dedicated to helping companies to single out which specific athletes they should target in order to make the product visible to a particular population. Um, and because this is the way that products are sold nowadays, that they are, they are sold specifically to exploit the cognitive biases and the insufficiencies in our product knowledge because this is big business. The, the health and fitness industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. So we have to be familiar with the way that it works. And the first step at least is, is being able to identify when some of these red flags are being sprung. And we've, we've, co we've covered several of them. And that's the best place to start. Is this really, Nick, in your opinion, when we're, when we're looking at, that's my dog, Sasha. She makes an appearance on the podcast every once in a while. Um, is this, it, when we're trying to evaluate, well, first off, I'm going to ask that question at the end. Why is it the nutrition industry that at least over the last maybe decade is, is like particularly problematic? Like why, why is it? I can't put my thumb on it, but it just seems like that industry tends to be more exploitive than the rest of the ones that I have to deal with. It, well, it's, it's two or three things. Number one, nutrition is important to everyone. Whether whether you want to, whether you want to 
lose some body fat to get into your swimsuit in the summer, you're going to look to nutrition. If you want to improve your exercise performance, you're going to look to nutrition. If you want to gain muscle mass, you look to nutrition. So nutrition is important for exercisers and athletes alike. That's the first thing. The second thing is that most people are relatively naive to the basic tenets of nutrition. Okay, most people understand the basic tenets of nutrition, but they wouldn't know enough to be able to, to design a really comprehensive periodized program. The third thing is that it's completely unregulated. Anybody can refer to themselves as a sports or performance nutritionist. You don't need any qualifications. You don't need any advanced degrees. It's different to, if you want to call yourself a dietitian, you have to have a degree in, uh, you know, an associated degree. You have to have a master's and you have to have completed a minimum number of hours in a clinic as a dietitian. Okay. And it's a protected term in most countries of the Western world. It's a protected, it's a, it's a government term. So you can't call yourself a dietitian unless you have the appropriate qualifications. But you can do a weekend course in, you know, healthy eating or performance nutrition, and you can set yourself up as a, as a sports nutritionist. So what you see more often than not is that undergraduate students who have degrees in sports science, they set themselves up as performance nutritionists and they can get away with it because it's not a regulated term. So the combination of all of those things, the public are relatively naive to it, everyone looks to nutrition, and anybody can call themselves a nutrition guru, that's a recipe for pseudoscience and a recipe for, for bad advice and misinformation. I, sh I should add a caveat. That's not to say that, that sports nutritionists cannot be excellent nutritionists. Some of the, the best nutritionists I know have come from a sports science background. Many of them have advanced degrees and are members of, you know, um, different nut nutrition governing bodies and have many, many years of experience and, you know, published lots, lots of research. It comes back to this basic idea that each individual must be judged on merit. But, you know, some of the most famous sports nutritionists in the world have very few credentials, very little experience, but they have a lot of Twitter followers. <laughs> You know, I'm not, I'm not going to mention any specific names, but uh, they, they set themselves up as nutritionists or nutrition experts. They get a following and they make a living writing books. And uh, as, as, is more, as is so common on social media, particularly Twitter, is people that have most of the followers are the ones that probably deserve them the least. <laughs> the, real, the real experts are the ones that, you know, um, have, a, have a much harder time getting their message out there. It's hard, man. I, I, I get that question asked, uh, of me a lot is, is like, who do I follow on Twitter for the right information? It's, and it's hard. Like I, I, I have a hard time with it and I try to keep track of it a lot. Um, and I can imagine somebody without, you know, without a reasonable background trying to, trying to do it as well. That just wants the right information because they're just a subject to the, Oh, well, this person has a lot of followers. They must know what they're doing. Otherwise all these people wouldn't have followed them. What's crazy is, is, is like, there we're also starting to see some people who have been like, you know, have really outstanding careers. And then for whatever reason, start going off the deep end. And 
have they, no idea who you're talking I, about. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't mind mentioning this because I do think it's, a, I, I do think, I do think it's a learning lesson. The, the one that like comes to mind to, to me the most that I think you're laughing about is Tim Noakes, and I have bought to set this up. So Tim Noakes is a, is a sports scientist out of, out of South Africa, and when I first started like managing and mentoring coaches, the lore of running, which is his like capstone, you know, book that he, that he produced, I've probably bought 60 or 80 of those books to give to new coaches. It's one of four or five that, that, I, that I bought routinely when we had a new coach come in or when I knew, when I knew somebody would get, uh, was getting into coaching, I'd buy him this little gift package and the lore of running was one of them. And everybody had a ton of respect for, for this person. And he had, you know, a huge following and whatever. And then just recently, for whatever reason, and he, and he, I, I should set this up even, even, even further in an effort of full transparency. He was actually on our board of advisors at CTS for a while. And, um, this is, this is very early uh, when the company started. And, and so he, and so he and I would have to have some professional interaction at some you know level level or another. But anyway, over the course of years, for whatever reason, he started taking up all these conspiracy theories and, you know, vaccines cause this. And it just started kind of like going off the deep end with all of this, but because he had amassed this huge inc- impeccable reputation people followed him with that as well. People followed him on all of this other salacious stuff that it's just quite kind of quite frankly bizarre. And it's hard. Like if, if you're relying on somebody for advice and this is the position I was in, right. I was relying on him for advice. I followed him. I gave his book to, you know, probably a hundred coaches. Now that I'm thinking about it over the course of years, when that person that you're relying for on advice all of a sudden is not giving good advice out, that's a hard thing to actually sift through, you know? And that can happen. That can absolutely, that can absolutely happen. And it's, I don't know, it's it's been one of those things that runs in parallel with the with the Twitter followers. It's hard to like actually cut through when that uh well when that happens. Yeah, there's from a critical thinking perspective, there's there's a lot to unpack there. There, there are three things I just want to quickly touch upon. Firstly, Tim is a, he's an MD, he's a medical doctor. So he's a sports scientist now, but he comes from a medical background. And it's pertinent because he's obviously um, s- sort of one of the linchpins of this low carbohydrate movement. And I have no intention of weighing in on that argument or the evidence associated with it. That's another that's podcast. Not, that's not a podcast that I'm ever going to be a part of. But, but, I, but I use this as a great example because it's a really important teaching point for, for, for anybody who wants to learn about critical thinking in this industry. Because it's a great example of an ideology or, or an inherent bias. Because... There are two sides of this argument, low carbohydrate, high carbohydrate, high fat, low fat. And there are people on both sides who have already made up their minds, despite the fact that it's a contentious issue, despite the fact that the evidence is inconclusive. A lot of people have already made up their minds. Now, I've always reserved making up my mind on that topic because I haven't read enough of the literature to really be as informed as I'd like. Because I'm primarily, my 
my main job is, is in respiratory and exercise physiology. This isn't my device. I don't have time to learn about everything. <laughs> but I know more than most about this topic, and I'm reserving judgment. There are people who have read a lot less than I have who have already made up their minds and have decided which camp they're going to sit in. By definition, that is an ideological position, and that's an inherent bias. So it's a really important teaching point that if you're not a true expert, you don't really know all of the literature, just reserve judgment. It's okay to say that I don't know. You know, those three words are really important as a scientist and as anybody who's trying to learn anything about the truth of how the reality really works. It's okay to say I don't know. The second thing is, you know, specifically with Tim, is that nobody is immune to giving bad advice. I'm not saying that he necessarily is or isn't. I don't want any emails. But, you know, I think as an example, medical doctors are, are put on a pedestal in that if you get advice from a medical doctor, um, then it's, it's considered to be good advice. But, you know, very often you have medical doctors who are also practicing homeopaths. And homeopathy is a widely discredited alternative therapy that is been shown not to work. It has no plausibility in that it, it it cannot work and it's been studied and it does not work. And yet you have medical doctors who are prescribing homeopathy to patients. It comes back to the placebo effect. So, you know, not all authorities, um, in fact, no authority, no individual should just be um, assumed that to always be right. You've always got to take the advice and test it and question it. Nobody is above scrutiny and no idea is above scrutiny. The last thing to mention quickly is, is you know, you mentioned the Tim's running book you've given to all these different people. You know, the book itself is still an excellent book. Yeah. And whatever you think about him as an individual, the advice in the book is still sound and it's still robust. And you've almost got to separate the individual from the advice because you can launch an ad hominem attack on an individual. Oh, so-and-so is an alcoholic. You can't trust him. Or so-and-so is, uh, you know, has, has gone off the deep end and you can't trust their advice. Well, look at the advice itself. Is the advice rooted in evidence-based practice? Can you judge it on merit to be sound advice? And the book is, it is and always will be an excellent book. So, think you're safe and still disseminating that around. Well, and that's how I've had to pivot my counsel. So earlier, my counsel was, here's this book, go ahead and follow all the other stuff that this sports scientist is doing to now, here's the book, take the information for what it is. If you're following the rest of it, look at it with a skeptical, you know, through a, through a skeptical lens. It's just a really bizarre e- example that I've brought up to a number of, of, of people recently. And I think it's one that enough of the listeners out there will kind of know some of the background on that. There's a learn, there's kind of like a learning lesson in, um, I, I want to come back to a question that I was going to ask earlier. And then I got interrupted with the, with railing on the sports nutrition industry. We'll give them a little bit of, 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 of kind of a break for now, but 
I presented this to you in the email as like, as you mentioned, sifting through the dirt to, to find the diamonds. Is it really a process of elimination that you have to go through? Like, this is bonk, that is bonk, this is terrible. Okay, now we've gotten to the final one. Is I mean, are, do we really have to go through that whole, that whole, this whole rigmarole, this whole circus of a process of elimination to figure out what works? Or is there something that we can just like look through to say, Yep. That's it. That's where I can go. It's probably more the former. I think <laughs> There's no hope. The, if you look at the, the, the range of products that are available, thousands and thousands, I think there are something like at the last count, I can't remember if it's five or 10,000 different supplements. Oh my gosh. Alone. I think it's something like 10,000 different supplements that are, and that's just one aspect of a much broader industry, right? And the supplement industry, there's a little bit more regulation in terms of products and practices. There's little to no regulation. So anybody can come up with a new product or a training program or a diet. It doesn't have to be proven. As far as the FDA is concerned, it only needs to be shown to be safe. And actually, there has to be evidence that it's harmful before it can be taken off the market. So it doesn't even have to be shown to be safe. It will, it will remain on the market until somebody can prove that it's not safe, which right. is a completely backwards way. Right. Of doing things, I know. Right. As far as, um, so the vast majority of the, of products that are available on the market have no evidence for efficacy and probably don't work. So yes, it is, a, it is probably a case of just assuming something doesn't work until, <laughs> until proven otherwise, that's probably the safe way to approach things, but you know, you, you don't always have to just, okay, if, if you see a product that you're interested in and then go through and, okay, look at the, see if there are any red flags and then check if what plausibility of the product is and then start looking into the literature. Ideally, that is the process that you would follow. And we, I go through that in the book. But you can also speak, you know, defer. If you're not sure, just defer to somebody who knows a little bit more than you do. Speak to an expert sports scientist. Speak to somebody who's trained to evaluate literature, speak to somebody who's been working in the area for like, you know, an academic, for example, or an expert coach, or somebody with many years of experience as a sports nutritionist who's appropriately credentialed, you know? These are all shortcuts that you can take that are more likely to give you positive results. You don't necessarily have to go through every single product and by a process of elimination, try and find, you know, the, the two in a hundred that are actually gonna benefit performance. You can ask people that have probably done the heavy lifting for you and you know that is there's a way of doing it and i talk about a lot of products in this thing many of which don't work but some of them do and i try and provide you know very concise literature reviews on many different sports science products so that i've done heavy lifting for you i've looked at the independent studies i've read the the meta-analyses and the the systematic reviews and then i try and provide a nice concise summary on okay these are the positive aspects these are the, are the, are the negative aspects of the of the product and i've tried to do that for some of the more popular products that are available but um there are just so many it's you know, know there are books and books worth of literature reviews there that uh but you know that's the other thing look at systematic reviews you don't ju just have to look at individual studies 
look at systematic reviews and meta-analysis who have come to the conclusions for you already and they've done the heavy lifting on, on your behalf. Okay, so here here's the nickel version of everything. Be a skeptic, it, especially when we're talking about nutrition products, and I would say to a lesser degree about equipment things. Be a skeptic. It's okay to have that skeptical lens. When we're talking about influencers, there are absolutely people that wholeheartedly you know, find benefit from the products that they're endorsing, but those products should be, those products should be evaluated on merit, not because of the endorsement that, uh, that they receive. There are some gems to find at the end of the tunnel and you can leverage the experts that have done the heavy lifting for you in order to find those gems. Those are like my top three. Well, and I guess the fourth one, I guess, is look for the red flags. Because I think most people can like look and say, okay, this is kind of weird. And if it's kind of weird, then you can probably throw it in the trash bin. Those four things, I think, are the summary highlights. Yeah, I'd agree with that. That's fair enough. And I would add to that by saying that critical thinking skills, just like any other skill, has to be trained and it has to be honed. You can't just expect to intuitively know because uh, we have ruling, we have all have ingrained cognitive biases and it takes time and practice and training to learn how to, you never can eliminate bias, but you can mitigate it as much as possible. And you, you just got to practice and train your critical thinking skills, read books, read articles, speak to experts, and you will get better at doing it. You won't just learn how to do it overnight. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen. You just have to invest the time because, as, as we said earlier, anything that's, that's worth obtaining is, in worth, is worth investing time over, and that's what you need to do. Yep. Okay, so I think to leave the listeners, I'm going to do two things if you're up for this. First off, in the show notes, I'm going to link to the IOC's consensus statement on supplements since we just spent like an hour and a half throwing the nutrition industry underneath the bus because it's, I really like their recent consensus statement that came out because it's easy for most lay people to read and it gives you the top, I think there's like five or six, like things that like actually work. You okay with that? Put that in the show mm-hmm. notes. Okay. Sure. That's the first thing. And I'm also going to leak to your book that we kept referencing you okay with I plug it instead of you plug it, plugging it? Go ahead. Well, okay. So Nick's, I trust you. Nick's book, that's a lot, man. We'll see if you trust me after this. So Nick's book is The Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science, Confronting the Myths of the Health and Fitness Industry. And this is how Nick and I got to know each other is through this book. And I have bought it through Amazon. I paid my hard-earned money. Nick didn't send me a free copy. His publishers didn't send me a free copy or anything like that. I read it and I personally like it. And it is going to be one of the books that I use for our coaches that come in to give them a little bit more of a critical eye. It's, I have found, and this is compliment to you, Nick, that it blends the practical and the scientific world very well. You come up with real world, real world examples, some of which are recent and some of which are like a hundred years ago, which is hilarious of examples in, um, in the, in the sports and the nutrition uh, field where products have been put out there that don't meet the claims that, uh, that they say that they're going to, and kind of people have been duped. And sometimes that duping is, um, can, can result in, uh, can result in death, as we mentioned earlier. And sometimes it's just, you know, you have the wrong product and like no harm, no foul, except for the integrity, which is a big thing as well. 
I'll link to that in the show notes as well. I hope people go check it out. It's a cool book. You have anything else to say about it, Nick? Uh, as far as reviews go, that, that's a pretty good one. So I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a good book, man. I appreciate it. All right, man. Uh, Nick, as always, where can people find you on social? You're also a good Twitter fo- Twitter follower as well, or Twitter follow as well. I always appreciate the stuff you put out there. It makes me think. You can find me on Twitter at NBTiller, and I tweet about ultramarathon and science and exercise physiology and all the stuff that I'm interested in. You can find out more about the specific work that I'm doing on my website, which is nbtiller.com. And uh, that's all I have to say. You guys just did a real cool study on rock climbers. Is that out yet? Yeah, we've, we've, we just published two, actually. One looking at blood pressure responses and one looking at general cardiometabolic responses. We, we stuck a metabolic cart, like a gas analyzer, on a bunch of elite rock climbers and got them to do some, some indoor bouldering. And it's the first published study to actually quantify the cardiorespiratory demands of, of climbing. It's a, it's a neat study. Um, you can find a link to that on my website, I believe. Cool. Go check and it we've out. Got a, and also, we've got a, just one other thing. We've got a really nice study that, that um, is hopefully going to be published soon. It is uh, basically asking the question, are females predisposed, physiologically predisposed to ultra-endurance sport? And we're, we're, we're tackling this age-old question that has been um, it, it's been attempted a bunch of times in the mainstream media, never very well, if I'm honest. <laughs> I decided enough's enough. Let's get some experts together and actually tackle this question. And it's, it's blowing out of all proportion now. It's, the article's getting bigger and bigger, as you'd expect. But uh, watch this space, and uh, there'll be more on that to follow. Oh, I can't wait till that comes out. That's going to be like so good for eating popcorn and watching people comment on it. Close the comments section. That's it. Just turn off comments. I can't wait. You know, there's like two things that have like historically like gotten me into a little bit of hot water. One is this: the whole diet tribes of you know the low carb people and the high carb people, and that should you know that should go. Without saying, just because everybody's kind of used to it right now. But the other one is, is will women eventually outperform men past a certain distance? And yeah. Well, the, <laughs> the funny thing is, again, it comes back to the theme of our discussion, is that a lot of people have already made up their minds right, on this. Right. Without knowing anything about the literature. Yeah. You know, to reserve judgment Yep. Well, until you know a little bit more. I'll reserve judgment. Maybe I can cajole you into the early release of it, but I'll reserve judgment until it comes out then. How's that? All right, you got it. All right, man. Appreciate it as always, Nick. A lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Nick for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. In an effort of full disclosure, I bought Nick's book with my own hard-earned money. I thought it was a great investment, a great value, and I will leave the link to his book in the show notes. I encourage you guys to check it out. You can even rent it for a period of time on Amazon. It's a pretty easy read. So go check it out. Really appreciate Nick coming on podcast. Appreciate everybody listening. If you have not had the chance, skip on over to Apple Podcasts and give this podcast a rating or a review. Really appreciate reading those ratings and reviews as they come across my desk. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.